PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrakeCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to a review of the June issue of Physical Therapy. Before we get started, I want to remind you all that this month is the annual conference that will take place in Salt Lake City, Utah, and there's a spectacular day on Friday, June 28th. There's a 7 o'clock mentoring session for authors. There is a Rothstein roundtable session beginning at 8 o'clock, and the topic is Medicare-mandated data collection. Is it an advantage or a disadvantage for our profession? How can we get on board? And then later in the day, there is a PTJ symposium on the upcoming special issue discussing rehabilitation in military personnel. So Friday is a particularly good day for the Physical Therapy Journal. We look forward to seeing you in Salt Lake City. And now on to the journal. The first article is a linking evidence and practice paper. It's entitled Exercise for Managing the Symptoms of Multiple Sclerosis by Paget and Castor. This is a really great paper for those of you who know about multiple sclerosis and may have gone to school in the 80s or before. It was common not to recommend too much strenuous activity for persons with multiple sclerosis because it led to fatigue. More recent research has certainly challenged that perspective. Because it's an emerging area, there was not enough research to do a typical quantitative synthesis, but rather this is a qualitative synthesis of six articles that are related to persons who have MS and exercise. The bottom line is that the qualitative data absolutely suggest that there's a benefit to exercise at least two to three times a week for up to 12 weeks and that the benefits are not only strength and ADL activities but also mood. So please see if you find that article to be of interest. The next two articles are about chronic low back pain and I'm really excited to have these two papers in our journal this month. The first is by Garcia et al., and they are all from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And it's entitled, The Effectiveness of Back School versus McKenzie Exercises in Patients with Chronic Nonspecific Low Back Pain. This is a randomized control trial. I want to emphasize that both of these papers are looking at chronic low back pain, not acute or subacute low back pain. The purpose of this study was to compare what has become known as back school to a McKenzie technique. So just for those of you who don't know, back school basically is four sessions lasting approximately 45 minutes with each session being organized to include exercises related to increasing mobility, flexibility, and strength. I believe that most of you are familiar with McKenzie's technique, diagnostic and mechanical therapy, that was proposed back in the early 80s. The bottom line is that in comparing the between-group differences, those patients who received the McKenzie intervention had greater improvements in disability at one month, but there was no difference between the groups for pain, okay? 
However, the difference in disability was only 2.37 points. And the question is whether or not that can be considered clinically significant. So thank you, authors, for a great paper. The second is the immediate effects of region-specific and non-region-specific spinal manipulative therapy in patients with chronic low back pain. This is another randomized control trial by Oliveria et al. from Sao Paulo, Brazil. This article will be discussed in a podcast, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it except to say how excited I am to see this randomized control trial. So please listen to the podcast and read this article. The next article that I would like to talk about is entitled Adherence to Behavioral Interventions for Stress Incontinence, Rates, Barriers, and Predictors. The first author is Borello France. She and her colleagues from a number of different departments around the country reported this paper. This is a secondary analysis. It's following a multi-site randomized control trial that looked at continence and the effect of a multi-component intervention on reducing incontinence. This secondary analysis looks at adherence to exercise programs. And so the question that the authors pose at the end is, if you have a group of women who are remarkably adherent to the exercises and there still continues to be stress incontinence, is the intervention the most effective intervention that should be used? So again, I encourage you to look at this article. I think it's really interesting. The next five papers I'm going to group together because they have something in common. The first is about the use of a balance form in persons with stroke. The authors are interested in looking at the responsiveness and predictive validity of these short forms. The second looks at vascular elasticity and grip strength in persons with hemiplegia. The authors are interested in understanding what happens to the hemiparetic upper extremity that is not used in persons with chronic stroke. So I think this has a lot of implications for rehabilitation, particularly in patients who do not use a hemiparetic upper extremity. The next is a tool to measure evidence-based practice in physical therapy. These authors are interested in developing a tool to examine the use of evidence-based practice in physical therapy. If this tool is demonstrated to be valid and reliable, it has potential use not only in clinical practice, but also in the classroom. The other measurement paper assesses the validity of the dynamic gait index in a balance disorders clinic. If you're interested in the use of the dynamic gait index, which is a very good clinical tool, and you're interested in balance disorders, I think that you'll find this paper of interest. The next paper is not talking about a tool, but it is looking at a single measure, and that is electromyography in persons following dissection surgery for head and neck cancer. I think it's very nice to see an EMG paper in our journal. It's been a long time. I look forward to the next step of this work, which is looking at outcomes of the scapular muscle exercises on function. I am delighted with a case report entitled Clinical Decision-Making in an Infant with Hypotonia and Gross Motor Delay, a case report of type 1 spinal muscular atrophy. 
The first author is Kirsten Malerba from the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. The second author is Jan Teklin, a professor here at Arcadia University. This is an excellent case report. We don't often see descriptions of spinal muscular atrophy. This case report illustrates the value of sharing clinical experience with your colleagues. In this case, it shows the importance of the physical therapist being part of the team, in this case to identify a movement disorder that had not been diagnosed. So the child was nine months old prior to the diagnosis of spinal muscular atrophy and ended up in hospice care and dying. It's a very sad story. I think it benefits all of us from hearing these stories. The two perspectives this month both really excited me. The first is entitled Pain Treatment for Patients with Osteoarthritis and Central Sensitization by Herbes et al. from Valencia, Spain. This paper is so excellent. First of all, it lays out, as one would expect, the epidemiology of osteoarthritis. It gives a very nice description of pain associated with osteoarthritis and then poses the question related to osteoarthritis and central sensitization, somebody who is remarkably sensitive to pain. The question is whether or not persons with osteoarthritis demonstrate central sensitization. To put sensitization and OA together, I thought, was really an exciting hypothesis. The reason that this is important clinically is the type of intervention. And so I really do encourage you to look at the paper, and I hope that it might change your mind about the type of exercise that you're offering some of your patients with OA and whether or not you might want to use modalities to address the pain issue itself. The final article in the June issue is entitled Interpretation of Subgroup Effects in Published Trials by Mark Hancock from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and his colleagues from Denmark. This paper is also exciting to me because we've talked for so long about the need for classification of our patients. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a background. It's not uncommon to see no difference between the treatment group and the control group or two different treatment groups. So the between group differences are often not extremely large. The effect size is not large. And a possible explanation for that is because there's so much variation in the patients within the two groups. And so there's been great interest in classifying patients and then examining the effect of the intervention on that particular classification. So the authors call this variable the effect modifier. So this has been a mantra among scientists for a very long time to consider the importance of classification. The authors take that issue on and maybe take it to the next level. So I thank the authors for this thoughtful work. So this concludes the June issue. I look forward to seeing you in Salt Lake City. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Crake, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CrakeCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.